I'm Nikki. And I'm Kirtana. And you're listening to The Chat Room. <laughs> Kirtana! Yes, Nikki. Why did the bike fall over? Why, Nikki? Because... No, 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 wait, wait, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I meant, like, why, Nikki, are you doing this to me right now? That's so rude. Today's guest <laughs> is a comedian. I thought it'd be fun to start with a joke. <laughs> I get it. I'm fully on board. The problem is our guest is the comedian, but you are not. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the disrespect is like... Today's guest is, uh, it happens to be... Disrespect is truly just off the rails. Today's today's guest is Nish Kumar, an absolutely hilarious British comedian who also somehow happens to be Nikki's cousin, although it's very clear in this intro that humor is not genetic. You just tell me when the disrespect is over. I'm almost done. Anyway, Nish currently hosts Hello America on Quibi. Prior to that, he hosted The Mash Report on BBC Two, which was the British answer to the Daily Show Colbert Report. And he also hosted the Comedy Central series Joel and Nish vs. The World, just to name a few of the many shows he's been a part of. In all seriousness, I really hope that you enjoy this episode and that you feel just as much a part of this silly, wonderful, lovely family as I did by the end. Aw, Kirtana, that's so sweet. Okay, good. Did I erase all the bad blood from earlier? Um, not quite because it was too tired. <laughs> that is why the bike fell over because it yeah, was too, yeah, yep, too yep, tired. Yep, yep. Now I'm feeling the disrespect. Got it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, Britain versus the U.S., Kirtana and I learned this morning <laughs> that we messed up this time thing because y'all are in G. Wait, what is it? BST. We're in we're in British summertime. We still do that goddamn daylight savings. I have <laughs> no idea any other country did that. If somebody's doing some weird arcane shit and nobody can really justify why it still exists in the modern world, I guarantee you, Britain is involved. <laughs> Like, I guarantee you, remember all the shit that you think of as being pointless and arcane, we think of as being, relatively speaking, modern. (laughs) That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Well, Nishitin, and I don't know how I can just call you Nish, but Nishitin, thank you. You can just call me Nish. That's fine. I don't deserve the, you know, the Malayali word for respect. I feel like my mom's going to call me after and be like, he is your older brother. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Where is the respect? Okay, I'll just do like a blanket nishitan, and that's gonna carry on for the rest of the episode. And that's yeah, and that's fine. Okay. And we, we can take that as read. I appreciate that you still persist with the uh, Malayali respect terms. For those listening, Nish is my cousin, and he <laughs> <laughs> literally by blood we are related. Otherwise, there would be no respect involved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, And I'm so, so, so excited to have you on our podcast because you have been someone who growing up, like we, we didn't really talk a whole lot because of our age difference, but I always looked up to you so much and what you were pursuing and really just following your dreams. And even when you came back to India to see everyone, like you just were not phased by anything. Like you're just always doing you. 
I'm a rogue element <laughs> sort of in both of my families. So, you know, it's nice for me now that you have also entered the business. And so therefore, you know, there's like a couple of rogue elements. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that leads us to our first question. I'd really love to kind of hear the origin story of how you realized you wanted to pursue comedy. And most importantly, I don't, our listeners obviously don't know this, but Nish's parents are, I think, like they are definitely my coolest uncle and aunt. Uh, out of that group they're just super chill super lax and I'm just so curious how that conversation went you know in our family I would say I think everybody's very chill and relaxed about their nephews and nieces (laughs) just just like not necessarily their own children like because when I told my mum that you you know you were working in this job and you were doing this my mum was like that's so great that's so exciting. Nikki's doing this cool job. And because my mum was like, maybe you could give us some advice. And I was like, I need to get some advice off her. Okay. <laughs> this is not the right way around that this, this is always gone. And I was like, there was very little of that when I started. <laughs> there was very little. So yeah, I think, I definitely think like there's a thing where like people are, our uncles and aunts are very supportive of us. And our pe- that gives our parents, I guess, the freedom to be maybe more pragmatic and more uh, realistic. I feel like we're also blessed with the gift of geography. Like, even if they're talking shit about me, I can't, I don't have to yeah, hear yeah. it. Like- yeah, 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 yeah. We're not on the right uh, WhatsApp group. Yeah. Sort of my gra- I saw my grandmother uh, at the weekend and she was just like, you know, we don't even have a single doctor, like in my immediate family. <laughs> And she was like, and she was like, what if, so, you know, what if we need a doctor? And I'm like, then we go to the doctor. <laughs> I think, I think because there are no immediate doctors in our, uh, in our like immediate family, I think there's this sense that like doctors are just constantly doing like weird back alley operations <laughs> on their grandparents. I mean, if she were here, it'd be like co-pays and all this yeah. stuff. <laughs> Would just go to a nephew or go to a grandchild and go, hey, look at this thing on my back. It's so much easier. You want a free doctor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is, the, this is the thing. We have single payer. We have universal health care in this country. So there's really no reason for me to go into medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's pretty mad. And then my mum also said, like, it, it, you know, neither of my kids is a lawyer. What if I need a lawyer? And I was like, what are you planning on doing? <laughs> that you sort of constantly feel you need a lawyer in your back pocket. But like, what? what's going on? You never know. I don't know, like, my uncle's gonna watch his back. I don't know what she's playing. <laughs> I mean, I think you took it too far, arguably, with your medical degree. I made no bones about that. I, I was never like, when I was at school, I wasn't very good at science or maths, really. I was always just very good at what I guess my parents would constantly refer to as the useless subject so I was always like I was I was always like good at English and history and like creative writing and stuff and so I guess those were I I, I'm not sure why my parents ever thought I would do anything else because when I was a kid I used to uh, all I did was just watch comedy on television you know or like go to the movies I don't think there was any, I mean, I, I, I am a big sports fan, but I, there was never any danger. My natural ability <laughs> was made quite clear for a minute one. <laughs> so there was never any ability that I doubt that I was ever going into sports. When I was a kid, there was a book, I, I assume it came out in the States as well, but there was like an episode guide to the first nine series of The Simpsons. And I used to read that book every night. Oh my God, you're so weird. 
What? Yeah. What? But this is. But, uh, but I maintain that this is like I've made. I've laid my cards on the table quite early. Yeah. It was. It, I think it was called like the complete guide to our favorite family. You certainly an... weren't hiding anything. Yeah. That's one hundred percent accurate. No, of course I wasn't. And so it and. It just had episode breakdowns and like they would explain all the film references and there'd be like extracts of dialogue. And I just used to read that every single night before I went to bed. I feel like you absolutely did. And I feel like that means that your parents had an ample amount of years to really prep what they were going to say their par- their kids. They, has to, they had to. They, ha- they can't <laughs> have been sat there watching me watch The Simpsons for two hours and then sit in my room and read a book about The Simpsons and think, this kid screams doctor. I, I I don't want to be treated by the doctor that just spent all his time reading about the goddamn Simpsons. Um, <laughs> but then also the thing is, the funny thing about my, my family is that like, you know, our whole family really values the performing arts. Like even though they yeah. wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't be their like first choice for their kids as a career. It's certainly something that they like, they value. So like when I was a kid, there was a comedy show on in the UK called Goodness Gracious Me, which was all South Asian comedians. And they would do sketches and it was really sort of about the culture clash. And I know it's not something that is necessarily massive in the States, but I would really urge you to check it out because there's some really good stuff in there. I mean, a lot of the comedy is very specifically situated to the culture clash between British people and South Asians, but it's really worth checking out, and it and that I I think probably gave me permission to be a comedian, because before that there was just lots of comedy shows that I really loved, but then when you see somebody who looks like you doing it, you kind of go, this is an option on the table for me, and that that probably first aired when I was about twelve years old, and so I think once you have that seed planted, then you feel like oh yeah I can I can this this could be a viable career for me. Were you hesitant to invite? uncle and auntie to your first show i just very recently started saying the word shit in front of my parents and i can't even imagine going further than that yeah it was definitely you know it was it was definitely a conversation i mean actually they so i i did sketches so when i was at when i went to university i uh, joined a like student sketch group and then we went to the edinburgh fringe festival which is this kind of huge month-long performing arts festival that happens in Edinburgh, Scotland. Yeah, totally. It's it's enormous. And comedy is now the sort of biggest single part of that festival. So my parents came to Edinburgh and like watched me perform. But I didn't, they didn't see me do stand up for a long, long time. I think they might have seen me once when I was doing like a short five minute set, but I just wouldn't let them come. And then eventually in (laughs) 2012, so this would be 2006, seven. And then eventually sort of six years later, when I did my first full length hour show, because that, that the big thing here is that we, everybody writes our shows, not everybody, but lots of people write our shows and take them to the fringe every year. And you do a new hour of stand up every year. And the first mm-hmm. time I did one of those in 2012, there was no getting away from it. You know, they were, I knew that they were gonna, they were gonna see me do stand up and talk about some pretty spicy subject. Once you rip the bandaid off, then you're fine. You know, like it'll never yeah. be as tense as the first time they saw me do it. Now it's all very relaxed. One thing I just want our, our listeners to know too, Edinburgh is amazing. The festival, the fringe for people who like need some context, like Phoebe Waller-Bridge did Fleabag mm, there. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I feel like I am really excited to learn about from you is is really just the UK comedy scene in general. I don't know much about it. I mean, I what were some of the challenges for you of breaking into the UK comedy scene, especially as a South Asian? Well, I think... I think that there are 
they're very different systems, but broadly, I think the challenges remain the same. I mean, I, I, all I can speak to really is the experience of my career. So I, after I was in that sketch group, I started doing stand up after I graduated and I moved to London and just did the open mic circuit. And the, the London open mic circuit is not massively different from say the New York open mic circuit. You know, there's just loads of pubs all through pubs and bars in the middle of town. And they just, lots of them have, comedy nights in like upstairs or basement rooms and you get people there who perform for free there's 20 acts on and half of them are awful a couple will be good and the other few will truly be in the middle of an emotional breakdown that you are now witness to in a small in a small <laughs> airless room all of these major cities have these little hubs of stand-up around the country which have sort of open mic gigs and then what you're trying to do is then graduate into paid gigs and I mean the nice thing about the UK it is changing now it's getting more and more difficult and economic circumstances and all that stuff and obviously who knows what's going to remain of this circuit after we're able to go back to work after whenever this pandemic ends but certainly right. before that time there was then a viable network of clubs around the country that do Thursday, Friday, Saturday gigs. You get booked for all three days. And, you know, it is possible with that club circuit to make enough money to live as a comedian, which I think is probably the big, big difference between us and the States. Like in the States, it feels like you have to get a writing job on yeah. something to kind of to sure. sustain yourself. And then there's this like the other way that you traditionally then break into like TV stuff is by writing a new hour every year and taking it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and then hopefully get the show put on in London and then try and get on our massive circuit of panel shows, which is another thing that's really specific to the UK scene is like we don't have late night shows so much here and there's only really sort of two talk shows um in this country so the thing there is obviously like the focus is get your five minutes ready for you know whatever the tonight show or colbert or any of those whereas here mm -hmm. the focus is get your hour ready get somebody to see it in edinburgh who will then book you onto a panel show and we that's we just i mean it's it's actually there's fewer of them than there were a few years ago but there's a a lot of them and I mean the challenges broadly I would say are the same you know are the same here and there in terms of like this you know it is a it is a real shot in the dark as to whether you'll be able to get on these tv things or not the, the challenge certainly when I was like starting as a South Asian comedian was that like you know you there is a sense and it's not even just with the South Asian acts there is a sense that if you are a an act for of an ethnic minority there's one slot for all of you there's the woman slot and then the minority slot and for people who are both i don't even know where you go i i think hopefully that is now starting to change and we were the last generation that sort of came through uh, under those kind of weird regulations but it, it personally and internally i always felt very com confident and comfortable and i do think that a lot of that is to do with you know even when you sort of encounter racism in the industry i always had this thing in the back of my mind of like goodness gracious me managed it so even if you there is a space for me to carve out and you know you you are aware that you have to fight hard but our parents all raised mm -hmm. us teaching us that you have to work twice as hard for possibly half exactly. as much anyway so we already went yeah. into this thing with lowered expectations so the, right. you know it, you just grit your teeth and and sort of fight on really
Well, what's so wonderful about the MASH report was, I mean, A, that you were the host, but also that there were so many women correspondents and men of color correspondents. So what was your experience like on that show and especially auditioning for it? How did that process go? It's funny. It makes me sound much more negative than I am as a person. But uh, to be totally honest with you, we didn't, I didn't believe I was going to get that job. I got asked to audition for it. I So the... Every couple of years in the 10 years that I've sort of been aware of these things, someone has said, we got to do a late night show. We got to try it. And the thing is, I think in British television, there just normally isn't the money that's made available for proper writers rooms for those things. And I think that they Mm -hmm. don't really have a sense of what the scale of them is. But the BBC about five years ago now were like, we're definitely going to do it. We're going to commission three pilots. And one of those three pilots is definitely going to get on air and it will be our, whatever it is, version of like The Daily Show or Saturday Night Live. It'll be our attempt at doing something like that. And, you know, it was specifically citing those American shows as a model. And so I uh, was in one of the pilots. I actually got fired. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Wait, yeah. what? I actually, I was doing one of the three pilots and I got uh, fired from it. I, I don't really know what the decision making process was, but I think there was a sense of like, nah, we may be not famous enough to actually be one of the hosts of this show. So they got rid of me from that show. But then obviously what that then meant was that I, when the third pilot, which ended up being the mass report, was being commissioned, they were like, hey, do you want to audition for hosting this? And I was like, yeah, I've got nothing else on. I just got fired. Perfect. Um, <laughs> and so and then I had to do... <laughs> But I went to the audition. Basically, my agent at the time was like, go to the audition and maybe you can get a correspondent job. Like, go and obviously you won't host this show. Let's just see what happens. And because I just I just couldn't believe that they would go for me as a host. Yeah. So like everything since then has been a pleasant surprise. We did the first four episodes and everybody just assumed we'd get cancelled. It's really weird. Nobody was like angry about it. It wasn't like we were like, oh, I can't believe we're going to get cancelled. Everyone was like, this was a lot of fun. We did four of these, and that's that's really fun. That's nice, though. Did you ever feel any pressure or feel nervous in blending comedy and politics? Because I think especially in our cultures, it's it, in our home, it's trying to keep these things separate and not trying to make politics part of your job because it's like this weird thing that taints what you do. Yeah, but sure. you did it so well. And so I'm just curious if you were ever scared or nervous that someone might respond negatively. To no, not really. Because again, like I, I really took a lot of inspiration. I mean, the first stand up I ever saw and loved was Chris Rock. So I think to be mm-hmm. honest, you know, when these, these things, if they affect you or you encounter them at an impressionable enough age, it's like you're incepted by an idea, you know, like it's like Chris Rock incepted me with the idea. Right that a stand-up could be a guy who wasn't white standing on stage screaming about politics. And, you know, however me, I saw I saw Bigger and Blacker, like, late night on B- on Channel 4 uh, here, like, when I was probably about, God, I, don't, I mean, I don't even know, maybe, like, 14, 15? And so I think if you're at that age, your mind is just a sponge. And so to me, the idea of a stand-up being a man with brown skin running around on stage screaming about the news... I think if that gets under your skin, if the idea of, if the possibility of that career gets into your mind at the right age, then you're, then I think that you are fine. There have been lots of various different negative reactions to things that I've done and things I've said on 
stage and on television. But, you know, I, you've got to keep it in perspective, you know, like the, the people get, you know, people get locked up for this stuff, you know, like Lenny Bruce was like put in jail. So you, as right, long as you yeah. keep all of that stuff in perspective, it's, uh, it's absolutely fine. Like, I think in a weird way, my parents are delighted that I'm a political comedian because I think they feel to some extent I'm using my education. <laughs> and like, they, like, from a familial perspective, certainly, there was never like, oh, don't talk about politics in public. There, there was definitely like, you know, that, that's, that side of it, they're actually cool with, and you know, and kind of excited by. Ancestrally, we come from like a line of quite like, radical Kerala leftists and so yeah. if, if anything my politics are you know you have to sort of explain to people like my politics are like are fairly moderate by comparison yeah. to some members of my family our <laughs> yeah our great-grandfather stood as a communist MP you know so I mean like if anything I'm a kind of I'm the Kamala Harris of my family <laughs> <laughs> perfect tie-in perfect tie-in you take an ancestral view yeah uh you know, that's actually that's actually really funny because i feel like um nowadays sometimes it can almost be the opposite right where people feel like they need to kind of inject their politics or or the news of the day into what they're talking about you know on screen because there's I, like sometimes it's almost like there's a responsibility attached to like you you have the yeah. platform you got to do it whether it's through comedy or not mm -hmm. like so I always wonder about the opposite it's really hard isn't it because we are all living in the world right now and we all understand that sometimes right. when we're all locked down in a pandemic you know and like here we're like our, right. you know country's economy is like in free fall and we're about to possibly proceed with a Brexit that's so destructive it now technically violates international law. We all live in that world and so we all understand, like I understand better than anyone, that sometimes all you want to do is turn the American office on and just watch <laughs> Michael Scott and it's all your friends, it's all your best friends and you or you want to watch like Parks and Recreation, something that's a complete distraction that gets you out of it. So like I am sensitive to the need for that kind of entertainment because I need it in my life. I also really love, you know, I'm a big, I'm exactly the right age to have been a total like acolyte of John Stewart and Colbert. And uh, I always like people who make sense of the world through comedy and make sense of serious issues through comedy. Um, and that's the comedy that I've always been drawn towards making. I'm still, I'm a fan of everything, but that's the comedy that I've always been drawn towards making. But, and also if you're a brown person in the media, you do feel obliged to speak up. You know, the, there are social sure. issues that hit us in a different way. You know, you do, it's something that I talk about a lot with like my friends who are also creatives of color. And we talk a lot about the kind of weird responsibility that we feel mm -hmm. to, you know, to speak out on various political issues. And I mean, it, it kind of goes for everything unless you're like a straight, rich, white dude. If you're anything right. other than that, you're being affected by politics in some way. And that's probably more reflective of the specific political moment that we're in right now. You know, right. and I can see the perspective. Why should it matter whether Taylor Swift made a comment on an election you know why why should that matter mm -hmm. she sings country songs about people uh, who have broken up with her you know like that it shouldn't it sh she shouldn't be obliged to you know but at the same time you're like shit she's a powerful person should she speak out about it you know like it's it's a fascinating uh, situation that you get put in like, i i look forward to a day where somebody could just go 
hey, that brown comedian has no opinions about being brown. Because to me, that would be an amazing moment. That would mean that we'd progressed beyond the conversations. We'd got to this like hallowed place that lots of people seem to think that we've got to already about the idea of like us somehow like being beyond race or like post-racial Britain or post-racial America, whatever nonsense you want to talk about. You know, I'm glad that we're talking a little bit about kind of the fact that it's both UK comedy and, and American comedy scenes have these people that are, you know, having this dialogue and are talking about these issues in their, in their daily shows and lives and stuff like that. For you, since we've talked a little bit about your experience breaking into UK, in, into the UK comedy scene, um, what has it been like for you breaking into the American comedy scene? Well, the American thing is kind of has been sort of interesting for me because it's not that I didn't really have like specific ambitions to do stuff in the States. I always thought it would be nice, but I the idea of like moving and like starting from scratch felt just so exhausting. You know, like I, I'm always amazed by people who can sort of up sticks because I always just think it's so exhausting. I, I think to be honest, what happened is lots more American agents and TV people started coming to Edinburgh to scout people. That's probably like a residual John Oliver effect. Right. Um, right, right. You know, I think even when he was, you know, like doing The Daily Show, there was sort of an in increased interest from people in the States to be like, oh, maybe we should see if we can check stuff out that's going on in the UK. Um, but also things like, you know, Just for Laughs in Montreal, you know, you get invited to do that from Edinburgh. Also, the cool thing about making comedy right now is the internet has created this like international comedy nerd audience yeah um you know when i went to, i did some shows in new york last year and we just sort of booked them in because a friend of mine is like booking shows in a theater today he moved from here to new york a few years ago and he said do you want to do it and i just thought it'd be fun and exciting and the idea of doing stand-up like stand-up it has its ancestral roots in in new york and certainly like a lot of the comedy that I love was birthed in the sort of basements of Greenwich Village. For me, it's like a cool and exciting thing to do just as a laugh. But like my mum, literally, my old mother said, who is going to come? <laughs> like my old mother was like, but seriously, like who would come and watch you in oh America? God. That is so sad. I would come this shit and I would come. <laughs> yeah, you already have guaranteed your family. They're obligated to at least watch once. That's what I was trying to explain to my uh, my mother, but my mum was like, like apart from like you know the bits of family we've got, who on earth is gonna? And I was like, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I don't know either. And I sort of had like feels like this is a very consistent theme. I just had such low expectations. I was like, oh yeah, and also like when you've come through the idea of performing for an hour or like an hour and fifteen minutes to five people does not phase me because I have done that on many occasions in this country. So the idea of doing that in the States, I was like, no, yeah, I can do that again. I did that. I did that for three or four years here. But then, you know, lo and behold, you get there and you're like, oh, it's there's loads of people. You know, it's like it's full. It was great. And then afterwards, you sort of the you know, I was like trying to work out what these people are doing here. And it's just all people that have like heard you on a podcast or uh, there's a British show here called Taskmaster, mm -hmm. which they did do an American version of. But um, there's a British version here. I was just like, how do you watch this show? Or like on the on the internet, granddad. Um, but yeah, it, it just means that like, and you know, like people were talking to me about the MASH report. I was like, I don't even know how you guys know this exists. It, you know, it's the internet has created a sort of community of comedy nerds. So that side of it was really good fun. And I mean, the show that I'm doing at the moment for Quibi was something that came from uh, a guy who I knew who was who would come to Edinburgh. And every year he'd be like, 
we got to do something in the States. And I was like, just cool. But, you know, in the way that somebody says to you, we've got to try and get gold statues of each other made. <laughs> You're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. I mean, I can see... I can see how that might be funny or nice, but I don't practically believe it's possible. Um, but he would just, you know, and he he had a job at a, at a TV network and he kept on being like, we're going to get something happening. And then when he started at Quibi, he was like, we're going to, this is it. We're good to go. You know, I've, I, I'm, I can make this decision and we're going to go for it. And you're like, again, you're like, sure, cool, man. And lo and behold, he like totally made it happen. And so I, I've been I've been very lucky in the dealings that I've had with the States. But also I think it's just the result of the fact that the internet is making the international comedy community smaller and is creating an environment by which we'd be able to like go and do like it's even someone of my sort of level of notoriety is able to go and like do a show in a like hundred seat theater in New York, which that the version of me that existed in the UK, even 10 years ago, sort of wasn't able to do that. If that makes sense. Well, what I love about what you're saying is I know you're framing it as I've always kind of kept my expectations low, but the way I hear it is you've, you were literally doing this job because you had such a passion for it. Like you had such a passion for the art itself and not, what happens after you release the art. People are so obsessed these days with like clout and followers and, you know, getting noticed and getting in the trades and all of these things that you lose sight of why you even started doing this to begin with. Oh, I think it's always got to be, I think you've always got to love the work, you know, like I think you've got to love the, the actual making of the thing. Otherwise, I just think, what's the point? You know, there are plenty of other ways to like, make a load of money and there are plenty of other ways to sort of and you know like you guys know you work in this industry you meet people who are like incredibly smart and seem to sort of have no love for what they're doing and you're like do you know that you could make I see you as an intelligent person and I think you could make an absolute killing (laughs) in something else like I just think if you're not gonna I just think everybody nobody gets into it because they think it's a a viable career plan you get into it because when you were a kid you saw it and you loved it but there you know it's not like an 11 year old is like I really am interested in this idea of statistical arbitrage trading (laughs) like I'm really interested in building you don't know (laughs) yeah I don't you know but like it, 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 the only reason we all do this is because like it affected us as children in, in some weird way. Like I think that, um, you know, like seeing comedy, like seeing like Chris Rock do stand up about racism, it, it goes beyond like the impact that it had on the career choices I've, I've had. Like it, it, it cuts to the core of like what fundamentally shaped me as a person. One of the things that I loved so much about Hari Kondabolu's like dispute with The Simpsons over the document, the amazing documentary that he made. One of the things that like cut me so deeply in that was he said, I'm just doing what the Simpsons taught me to do, you know, like questioning authority. Right. And I love that so much. I love the way that he handled that whole thing. But also I, I, I love that statement because I, I it, it sort of cuts to the core of like these things that affected you at such a young age. They like, they didn't just affect your career choices they're like shaped who you were as a person and so it has it all has to come down to do you love do you love the work um but I love that though because 
it, I, we, Kirith and I talk about that a lot on our podcast where our community is such a bubble where you are just conditioned to be like, it, there's only one slot. It's only for you. Don't you know, yeah. interact with the other South Asians because they're your competition. But we are in an mm. industry where that's not the case. Like when your agent is like, oh, niche is available. I'm like, we got to work together because we're the only people who are going to champion each other. I, I feel like I, I don't want to make it sound like there's like a burden on you. But you definitely feel the thing of like, okay, I'm here. Who else can we pull up? Who else can we bring into this? You know, I I, I really feel like I experienced that a lot. And, you know, the conversations that I have with people who are my age who are creatives of colour, the conversation is always, okay, the door is open. How many of us can we? <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we, absolutely. Like, can we like work with each other and like elevate each other? What has been your most favorite part about doing Hello, Hello America? I, I really enjoy the element of like the writing room, the challenge of putting it together. But if I'm totally honest, one of the greatest joys for me is getting the opportunity to talk about a country's screwed up political situation <laughs> that isn't my country. <laughs> you know, like there's definitely an element of like, this is a, this sort of is a relief. And like one of the things we always try and stress is like, we always try and like where possible remind America that we are also in a seemingly terminal <laughs> slide <laughs> as a country. Like, because we definitely didn't want the show. Like, when, you know, when I was sort of 15, 16, in the kind of Bush era when I was starting to watch British comedy a lot, there was a lot of like dumb American gags and, you know, it was like, oh, isn't Bush an idiot? You know, but we don't have a leg to stand on. You know, we, we both countries have elected as their leaders the incarnation of their worst collective national impulses. <laughs> right. Like no, Trump. Trump, absolutely. Trump. Yeah. He's, and J Boris Johnson is like the worst things that everyone thinks about Britain. <laughs> that is Boris Johnson. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, at the end of the, uh, the first Ghostbusters movie where they all have to imagine like their worst nightmare. Like Boris and Trump are like the equivalent of the Stay Puft Marshmallow <laughs> Man. Like it's the incarnation <laughs> of like our worst like deepest fears about uh, about ourselves um so yeah so in a way my favorite thing has been like going ah we're kind of all in this we're all in the mess together and you know it's nice to know that another country is experiencing it as well <laughs> misery loves company <laughs> yeah it is misery loves it's misery loves company that's the story <laughs> of the uh, progressive movements in both of our countries <laughs> the story of our global situation <laughs> well that's a uh, kind of a downer um what <laughs> we should let's maybe let's maybe end on a lighter note here um you don't want to end on misery loves company i'm confused. let's let's maybe not end on misery loves company yeah uh despite the fact that it is absolutely a true statement we should definitely i feel that we should definitely acknowledge the fact that in terms of our family, like the older generations have definitely been slightly perplexed, but like the younger generations are definitely very into what we're doing. Yeah. And uh, one of our other cousins has actually been in Bollywood movies and like has done stand up. Like uh, his name's Rajiv Ravindranathan. He was in like Three Idiots, which is like one of the biggest Bollywood movies of all time. Shout out. It's, it, it is really it, one of the things that's been so great in my career is like the general confusion of an older generation that has then been met with the absolute unquestioning support 
of uh, like our like strand of the family tree, like and and you know across three continents, well, across four continents, because I've also got family in Australia as well. That's very true. And even, you know, one of our other cousins, he like before the pandemic was starting to get into like the South Indian film industry, kind of below the line yeah. stuff. And I, it's it's kind of cool to like see, you know, Rajivadan started this thing and then you did and now I am and hopefully more people in our family will feel comfortable pursuing that career. And for those who want to spot Rajivadan and Three Idiots, he is the bully that pees on the spoon yeah. and gets his, you know, thing buzzed. <laughs> Iconic. It's like it's hilarious <laughs> when I that I get asked in interviews about, oh, what does your family, you know, are you an outrider in your family? You're like, not only am I not an outrider, I am not the most successful person in show business <laughs> in my family. Like you're like, oh, this match report clip got shared a few times. And you're like, do you know how many people saw the three idiots? Yeah, do you know how many <laughs> millions and millions that, that movie made? Also, wait, don't forget uh, English Vinglish. He was the South English English, yeah. in Sri Devi's class in English Vinglish. One of the main actors. The big problem with him is that he, and this is the real stickler, he kept his day job through the whole process. <laughs> so he also has an advertising business. So, like, can you imagine that conversation with my parents? Well, I do want to end on uh, on a note that I think we we like to ask uh, a lot of our people that we have on as as someone who has made their stamp in the industry in their in their unique ways. What is a piece of advice that you would give Rising Comics today, whether it's UK here or wherever? I this is going to sound so boring, and every time because I. You, you, it, Every so often, someone does what you've done, which is make the ill-advised decision to ask me for advice on a career. <laughs> and so you always end up having to say the same stuff that makes it sound so profoundly boring, which is particularly live stand-up, which is my background and what, what I can speak to with something approaching a degree of expertise. It, it is absolutely all about performing as much as possible. It is about, it is a muscle that you can just work and work and work at. And there's no, there's no kind of substitute for that. There's no like quick fix. And also, I mean, I, I think a lot of the time when you give pieces of advice, well, who you're really talking to is a younger version of yourself. Right. And I, I would say the biggest thing that I learned is like, don't worry about your, your career will take care of itself if the work is good enough. And just focus on, making your jokes better and if you're writing scripts and you have a script that you think is good and it's not getting anywhere write another one and push yourself further and further and just don't think too much about like what is the sort of career implications and also like keep your own like internal like specifically maybe for like artists of color and south asian artists specifically it's like keep your own internal moral barometer about what you want to do and how you want to represent your community. And if that manifests itself in you not really even mentioning race and you think that that's the best way to do your work, then do it like that. But definitely keep, like one of the best things I did in my career in retrospect was when I was 21, 22, I got asked to audition for a sitcom where they wanted me to do a like Peter Sellers in the party Indian accent. Oh God. Um, and I said, and I said, no, and the agent that I was with uh, stopped working with me. And at the time I was like, man, that really sucks. But in retrospect, you're like, 
you, you can't go against your own internal moral barometer. And so like, don't compromise on your core principles and be in a position where you're like selling out your heritage. Like th that, like I, I, I want to keep pushing for brown artists to not have to talk about being brown the whole time. Yeah. But I definitely want to nip in above the idea that it's okay for like, for us to like sell out our background and heritage totally you know especially because it's like we weren't even born in those countries yeah. you know those are not the countries of our birth it's definitely not our place to like do them down and also just like support each other one of the most important things in my career have been the support of a other comedians and b uh it, particularly in the last couple of years um other creators of color and those two things have really like sustained me through the last 15 years. And those are the things that will sustain you through your career. So you, your relationships are so important because it's just so important to have somebody who you do the same job as, or who has the same background as you, that you can talk to about things that you're going through and be there for them and reciprocate that support and just like have each other's back. Just be there for each other. Girl. I feel like I've morphed into like some trendy camp counselor <laughs> who's like, trying to give the kids a message about together <laughs> and at the end of some terrible 1980s high school movie. I know so that like I know that you're like digging everything that you're saying but it's all stuff that like needs to be said. I know that like when people ask these questions and you feel like you're giving the same answer it's a it's an answer that people just need to like keep in mind. So I I I don't want you to dig yourself too much about it. <laughs> <laughs> And not feeling discouraged. I mean, it, it is such a horrible thing we're all going through right now, but we're all going through it together. And there are so many, you know, different platforms. And thankfully, we have the technology these days to if you're a comedian, there are, I mean, every day on deadline, I'm seeing TikTok stars, so and so got signed, real stars, so and so got signed, like people, people are still hunting for this good comedy. So don't think because you're not able to go out and perform that your career is over, that you use every single piece of technology that exists. I feel that. I've watched Bob's Burgers like six times in a row at this point. But also like, it's really, it's really crucial with those things, all of the things, you know, Instagram, TikTok, all of that stuff. It's crucial to like, keep in mind the comedy element of what you do. And you don't have to go yeah. into those realms and play by the rules of the people that have been successful in their in those fields. So like all that TikTok stuff, it's it's not about comedians going in and doing something like that. It's about seeing what TikTok can offer you and how you can exactly. make that funny. Like the Sarah Cooper lip sync thing. What a simple, <laughs> ingenious conceit. Totally. Like what an absolutely totally. brilliant example of how actually it's it it does the fundamental principles of it don't matter. Whatever the medium is that you're working in, you just got to have a good idea and execute it well. Well, Nishetan, <laughs> ending the blanket statement. Thank there you, you go. You got to you got to bookend it. You got to bookend it. Eighth grade me is just still fangirling over talking to you. I've honestly like waited for the day where you and I could be peers and work together, talk <laughs> about this stuff together. So I'm so so. Uh, grateful that you you know came on the podcast and and talked about all these different experiences and for those who have not seen Hello America yet it it honestly to me is like the it is the perfect type of Quibi show like this is the type of thing that really does feel like you know it hits you really 
hard in this little amount of time, but it's so funny and uplifting, but also so real and raw. So I highly encourage everybody to go watch it. Yeah, the impact is stronger. That's for sure. I think you're absolutely right about that. And it was nice to meet you. I've, I'm meeting you for the first time right now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, quite, it's getting increasingly <laughs> common to just meet people as disembodied voices on the internet. <laughs> I've met so many people and made friends like that over Instagram, but you have to be clear that you're like DMing them DMing them with friendship. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, the Nikki Menon story for anyone who hasn't (laughs) listened to like her her autobiography is literally going to be titled DMing with friendship. (laughs) I've already written it. This biography, I've already written it. The chat room is hosted by me, Nikita Manon, and me, Kirtan Sastri, in partnership with Brown Girl Magazine. Consulting producers are Pallavi Sastri and Nihar Sinha. All podcast artwork is created by Ashwarya Sukesh, and opening music is by Sridhar Bhamani Party. Special thanks to Trisha Sukujawalia. Please subscribe to the chat room on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Thanks for tuning in.